I am here today with Dennis McDougall, the acclaimed author of such celebrated books on Lou Wasserman, The Last Mogul, The Chandler Family, Jack Nicholson, and Bob Dylan, as well as Dennis is an award-winning journalist having worked at the Los Angeles Times for 10 years, a longtime contributor to TV Guide, and was a producer at CNN during the O.J. Simpson trial. Dennis, it is a pleasure to have you on America Speaks today. Well, it is a delight and a privilege to be here with you, and I have every hope that uh, we'll be able to uh, end all of America's miseries overnight simply by our conversation here today. Indeed, I'm counting on that. You know, Dennis, it's no surprise you have been called L.A.'s number one muckraker. Well, that was uh, a few years ago. I don't uh, rake as much muck as I once did, but I'll still try to, you know, get a shovel and a pick now and then and dig around and see if I can find any morsels down in the dirt that flows down the concrete channel of the Los Angeles River. I want to begin by diving into your new book, California Bloodline, The Legacy of Jerry Brown. In this era, dominated by corrupt and self-serving politicians, what made you take on Jerry Brown? Oh, wow. Short question, long answer. Jerry Brown has always been one of my heroes, I suppose. He's flawed, obviously. He's outspoken. He's visionary. He's uh, thin-skinned. He has all of the earmarks of being an American original, uh, and he's all ours. That is, he belongs to California, hence the working title of the book is California Bloodline, the legacy of Jerry Brown. The Browns, Jerry and his father Pat, were pronounced a dynasty some time ago because they both were governors of this state and no small potatoes when it came to their respective times in office. Both have been visionary governors. Pat and Jerry Brown, these are the people who have led California from sort of a backward state, at least in the eyes of the rest of the nation, 150 years ago to what is arguably the leading light. Well, California has become the city on the hill for the other 49 states. You know, it's gotten to be a cliche that it's the sixth largest economy in the world, sandwiched between Great Britain and France. It's astonishing when you think about it. It is almost a nation state in and of itself. But it's so much more than that. California leads the way. California has set the standards. In my lifetime, I can remember back uh, when I was a, a barefoot boy with cheek. I went to Huntington <laughs> Beach with my surfboard trying to learn how to surf back in the 60s. Nobody in my family, none of my cousins back east had any idea what surfing was. And it was the Beach Boys that carried the clarion call around the world. California would invent this, and people in New Jersey and Akron, Ohio, and Minneapolis would glom onto it and try to find some place to surf in the middle of the country. That happened, and that was because of California. California was the promised land and set the standards. California, through the help of Walt and Roy Disney, invented a theme park. Disneyland was the first, but now they're everywhere. 
California invented the movie business. Absolutely. California invented the personal computer and created the industry that is now Silicon Valley. California leads the way. And the governors, Pat and Jerry Brown, get an awful lot of the credit and the blame for everything that that implies. So father and son, is there a huge difference in governing? Are we observing for Jerry Brown a more zen approach to managing our resources and the state's welfare? One of the reasons I'm trying to tackle this book is because I'd like to answer that and many more questions about this iconic father and son for myself and then for a larger reading audience. Pat the father was the product of the first major wave of eastern immigration into California. And he grew up in the 20s and came of age during the Depression, followed a legal career and politics at the same time. He was first elected governor in 1958 and then very famously re-elected in 1962 when his opponent was Richard Nixon. This was the now very famous drunken speech from Richard Nixon upon losing in the November election. It came out and rather than politely telling the press corps that he had lost and that he uh, was conceding to Pat, he stood up in front of them and said, Well, you're not going to have Richard Nixon to kick around anymore. I've had it with you people. And went on to lay into the press corps in much the same way that we see a a president now tweeting about the press corps. Only this was back in the days when that was still seen as being kind of crazy. Not sure exactly where we've gone in 50 plus years regarding our elected or unelected leaders. I don't think we've matured. Not a lot. (laughs) Not much. But, you know, it's interesting, this dynasty from Northern California Mm -hmm. versus those from Southern California, how their vision of this state is. Is it a different vision? There has been Northern California and there has been Southern California. And they have their own capital cities. The southern capital of California is Los Angeles, obviously. And the northern capital has always been San Francisco. You have these two separate states, almost. And there's a competition of resources. Oh, yes, absolutely. I think of Jerry Brown today versus Jerry Brown in his first, you know, reign as governor after Reagan. What's interesting to me is this notion of these two Jerry Browns. There's a different energy coming from him today. It's very subdued. Yes, and there are many reasons for that. Probably the overriding reason is that Jerry unlike a good many politicians, has learned from his own experience. And we as a state are very fortunate about that because he has the same fundamental ideals that he's had since he was enrolled in a Jesuit seminary. I mean, that's one of the delicious things about Jerry is that he's always taken faith very seriously, but he does not fix himself in his ways, if you will. Jerry understands, unlike Trump, what the strictures are on elected office. 
I think this was true even during Brown 1. He understood that when you are elected to office, any office, that essentially it's a popularity vote. And he accepts that and looks upon it philosophically from that point of view. So he's not saying, okay, I've been elected to office and I automatically have a mandate. He does not rest on his laurels. He never has. California is not turning back, not now, not ever. His truth is marching on. I have to interject here that he is a thorn in Trump's side. Ha! I think it's probably more like uh, a spear. There are signs that are disturbing. We've seen the bold assertion of alternative facts, whatever those are. We've heard the blatant attacks on science, familiar signposts of our democracy, truth, civility, working together, have been obscured or even swept aside. And let me be clear, we will defend everybody, every man, woman, and child who's come here for a better life and has contributed to the well-being of our state. Given that Trump has now pulled out of the Paris Accords, Jerry Brown is once again a thorn in his side. Brown has led the way, affirming that California will meet or exceed the standards set out in the Paris Accords. Jerry Brown is firm about what he sees for the future of California, but where does he sit in terms of the privatization of water? I go back to what I said earlier about Jerry recognizing the strictures of elected office. Mm -hmm. He can do a lot, but he can't do everything. And He's never been guilty of waking up at 3 o'clock in the morning and tweeting out how he's going to change everything and make America great again, or California. I think he's painfully aware of the threat of privatization of water. Remember, this is the guy that created the Air Resources Board. This is the guy who uh, created the California Coastal Commission. This is the guy who first got California involved in a hard look at alternative means of energy. He cares deeply about the preservation of what we have and not just the exploitation, which may be the single biggest difference between himself and his father. Being that you are the investigative reporter that you are, I cannot let you go without bringing up the scandal that we're living through. Do you see this as a Watergate? Oh, this is light years beyond Watergate. You think an impeachment trial is on its way? I think that if the Democrats were in charge and showed any true dynamism in either the Congress or the Senate, yes, I think impeachment would be absolutely uh, inevitable. God knows that what Trump has done to date that we know about so far exceeds a blowjob in the Oval Office. Well, you know, what, what we're going to have, I predict, is a replay of the early 1920s, at least nationally. Harding dies unexpectedly in a compromising position. I have little doubt that something akin to that is going to happen with Trump. I don't know if he's going to get caught with uh, Russian hookers or with a Arabian horse or what, but something is going to happen because 
Trump is 71 years old. He weighs more than any president since Taft, and Taft famously was lodged in the bathtub when he was a Supreme Court justice and could not get out. He had to call his aides in to help him unwedge himself to get out of a bathtub. I can see something like that happening. Trump, for all of his alleged energy, this guy, you know, who's up all night, okay, at 3 o'clock in the morning, how many people do you know who are up regularly at 3 o'clock in the morning? Well, I, for one, am sure losing sleep with this presidency. You know, Dennis, there just seems to be no shortage of Trump's troubling diversions to dominate the news cycle every day. There's something else. I mean, his responses to Comey's book tour, Stormy Daniels, and now Michael Cohn's potential indictment, our heads are spinning. And impeachment really does seem too far off in the future to give us relief. I don't think he's going to be impeached. That doesn't necessarily mean, though, that he's going to be with us for the next two and a half years. He's shown that he's not beyond spinning out of control. And I suspect that at some point, if impeachment doesn't happen after the 2018 elections, that the constitutional amendment that calls for the disabling of a disabled uh, president may kick into force. And uh, we'll find the first uh, president in history who's ushered out of the, uh, the White House. Thank you, Dennis, for today's very inspired and informative conversation. And please come back for our next episode of America Speaks for part two of my conversation with acclaimed author and raconteur Dennis McDougall. If you have protested for anything in the past 18 years, you very well may be in my book, I Protest. Please visit my website at www.tishlampert.org. That's T-I-S-H-L-A-M-P-E-R-T dot org and see if you can find yourself in my book. And we would love to hear from you. Please write to us at americaspeakspodcast at gmail.com and let us know what you thought of today's show. I want to thank James Koblenz, without whom these podcasts would not be possible, and Ray Peasy for his inspired music. Remember, America Speaks believes every one of us has a story. And a voice.